0: this is dr charles parker and you're listening to core brain journal it's a place where i connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on main street well welcome aboard folks dr charles parker here one more time hosting the core brain journal And we're so pleased to have a guest on tonight who's going to talk about a lot of really topical issues, including emotions, and more importantly, the superhuman mind, if you can get a load of that. And this is Core Brain Journal talking to you about the superhuman mind. And our guest tonight is Britt Brogard, Britt, Dr. Britt Brogard. Sorry about that, Britt. Welcome aboard. We're so happy to have you on board.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: So what I'm going to do is introduce her in just a minute. We're going to just say a couple words from our sponsors, and then we'll get on because we want to hear. She's very interesting. i tell you that right now. So Core Brain Journal is sponsored by some very interesting folks. One is DHA Laboratories with over 3 million studies. They are deep leaders of experience with the big picture of really biomedical measurements, biomedically measuring, for example, methylation, Cryptopyril and Copper Challenges, all of which dramatically change brain function. Up there outside of Chicago, they have a global service with a molecular focus. Stay tuned and head over to dhalab.com forward slash core for more specific info. CBJ is also sponsored by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center Team's in Norfolk, Virginia, who provide residential care on an evolved family, interpersonal, and they are globally focused as well. They are very TRICARE friendly and see people from really all over the states and often the world. So we're going to be talking more about them in just a second. It's important to know that they have a new voice, a comprehensive assessment voice that includes biomedical testing for treatment failure at this residential treatment center. Quite interesting. More about Barry Robinson Center over if you visit over at Barry Robinson, B-A-R-R-Y Robinson.org forward slash core. Now let me introduce Britt to you. She's very interesting. She's permitting me as a Doctorate level person to be a little bit more familiar, and she's down. She's vis- visiting us from Florida. But the nice thing about Brit is she's an international personality. She is originally from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, and she's going to tell us more about that when we get into it. Uh, by way of introduction, I'd just like to say she has co authored The Superhuman Mind, which is about how ordinary individuals can change their minds and brains. Sounds familiar here at Core Brain Journal. And she's continued looking at how we can bring about positive changes, not just in the area of extraordinary abilities, but also to the mood, the personality, and the true meaning of life for that individual person, what they're going to contribute on their tour here in, uh, in this life. So with that, let's talk about the superhuman mind. Britt, how did you get in to writing a book like that? It sounds so deep, but so interesting. Just a great yeah. title.
1: <clears throat> well, it uh, goes back to my childhood, uh, where I noticed that when I was uh, afraid of monsters under the bed or whatever I was afraid of as a child, um, I had these colorful images, the same kinds of images in front of my mind. I was clear that they were not real, but they were sort of uh, projected. Um, I wouldn't have—I was was too young to have—I wouldn't have known the the word hallucination. But had I known that, I probably would have thought that was what what it was. Um, But it just came on when I was really afraid. Then um, fast forward to high school. And um, one time, uh, we we didn't have uh, psychology as such in high school, but we had a, a biology class that covered some psychological topics. And suddenly they introduced a term called synesthesia. And I synesthesia. love that
0: term. Pardon me <laughs> yeah. for interrupting. I'm <laughs> yeah. absolutely totally nuts about that term. Go ahead and say it. Go ahead. And uh,
1: synesthesia, yes. It sounds a little bit like anesthesia, and it's not, uh, of course, the word is it's related to that, but it's uh, quite a different condition. Uh, with anesthesia, you are not conscious of anything. In synesthesia, yeah. <laughs> you, are, um, you have a, a kind of crossing of senses or unusual images um, in response to stimuli that other uh, people don't have. So, so my form is actually not the most uh, common one, but um, I realized that that's what I had. Uh, I had a kind of what's called uh, emotion um, image or emotion color shape uh, synesthesia. Uh, which meant that, in my case, it was just in response to fear that uh, this particular image sort of was came, became projected out in front of my mind, and it still does that uh, to that uh, uh, until today
0: the- well, let, me, let me stop you right there, just say a little bit more about that because I think it 's very interesting it 's a neurologic term. the reason I jumped and got so excited about it is you know what happens, i guess is that you can uh, tickle somebody's toe, for example, and yes. have a completely disparate, odd presentation in another part of your body because of the synergy that's all, that's why they call it synesthesia. So yes. they're, they're actually connected in ways that you couldn't predict because you'll have some kind of a response that you wouldn't predict because it's based on that neurologic connection. Yes. And I'm, I'm going to interrupt <laughs> and just tell you a word since you like synesthesia and I got so excited about the word. There's another word that you want to know, which is the opposite of synesthetic, and that's diacritic. <laughs> and diacritic is when a person is so busy polarizing and being suffering with dogma and looking categorically. Synesthesia is the underlying connections that are present that may not be fully recognized at first in the conscious mind. Sorry, I just wanted to mention that.
1: No, that's great. Uh, yes, so um, so, a little, so a little anecdote about my own uh, synesthesia. So I eventually found out that that's what it was. Mm, um, interesting. Uh, and then we fast forward again to after my PhD, after my neuroscience degree and my philosophy degree, and I did a postdoc in Australia, uh, and I was hiking in a in a rainforest, and there are some very dangerous snakes in Australia, but since I had been there for a couple of years already, I was used to them. Uh, I was uh, able to spot them, and usually they were, I mean, if they bit you, of course, they were not harmless, but usually they were pretty much just lying in the sun and um, and relaxing, right? Um, but, so I was hiking in the rainforest, um, and suddenly uh, this uh, imagery that's sort of projected out in front of my mind comes on without me feeling any fear for the first time ever. Mm. And uh, that, that that's odd. This is not... Supposed to happen. It's supposed to only happen if I'm afraid, um, but I'm not afraid because yes, I was, you know, accustomed to, to the snakes and so on. Uh, uh, and then I realized that there was actually a snake quite, quite close to me. So, so there is a, a fast uh, uh, pathway for processing emotions that apparently picked up on, on the snake uh, quite close to me and and uh, generated the fear synesthesia. Um, so
0: that is interesting, yes. isn't
1: it? Yes. Yes. It, it's just very interesting. So I was it, your
0: pre-conscious was hooking up with a snake.
1: Yes, oh, but I wow. was only conscious of the fierce anesthesia. So I like to say that my fierce anesthesia saved my life, even if it might not have been quite true.
0: <laughs> well, that is very, very interesting. I mean, that, that's the first time I've ever heard of something like that. Now i you may not be a, a snake expert, but I'm, interested in snakes a little bit do you do you remember the name of the snake
1: uh no but i, I know that the two poisonous snakes are um sort of colloquially in Australia called the brown snake and the black snakes and those are the black snakes in the rainforest oh, that, right. Uh, right they have a, a, a they have a lot fancier name of course if you're a snake
0: mm-hmm. yes so what did you do then now you're there on the path and you're out there in the woods are you by yourself or are you with somebody
1: um at that uh, I was actually with my um my parents uh mm-hmm. and my brother and his wife. Uh mm-hmm. so so I was uh, usually the one who had to point out the snakes uh, for them. <laughs> uh this time I was not the first one to notice the snake. I was the first one to notice the fierce anaesthesia. Uh and um my sister-in-law said, like, oh my god, there's a snake right next to you. But I mean it was uh, if if it doesn't feel threatened, it's not going to bite you. Right, but, but, but had I taken a wrong step and stepped on it, it might have bitten me. And yeah, yeah. then it takes only about thirty minutes before you are actually before they will kill you. So
0: <sighs> venomous. <guess>. Okay, <laughs> now that's very interesting. So so you had some very significant synesthetic experiences.
1: Yes, yes. From uh, your
0: childhood through high school, even after.
1: Yes, even now, even now. It takes quite a lot. It takes probably a lot more now than when I was a child before I got really intense. Uh, it, it's, you can think of it as imagery, but almost like projected outside of your mind, sort of like if you're staring into light for a really long time and then you have these like little bubbles after images, uh, after you're staring into the bright light. Uh, so mine is, is 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 feels that way in set in the sense that it feels like it's outside of my eyes, but it's much more colored. It's uh has a green greenish bluish color, it has some rotation uh in it, and it has sort of a a, a peaky kind of landscapey uh feel to it. So mm-hmm. so it's the same, very same one every 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 time. And um yeah, it doesn't fail. It has this um, almost like after I got to To the U.S., I would always say it's like kind of money-colored, but that's not the color of money. (laughs) It's
0: just just because you came to the U.S., that's what it was. Uh,
1: Yeah, they was predicting that, probably.
0: (laughs) So then, now, what did you learn about that? First, I was going to ask you about the images. Thanks for describing them. So then you have a built-in alarm mechanism in your body. That, on the one hand, deals with reality and also deals with the imagination
1: yes, because, yeah, so, in that particular instance i I did not have any awareness of what created the imagery, but in most cases, I do, mm-hmm. um, but it can still i mean it's still an alarm mechanism i mean there i have I have had uh, occasions where a person has given me that um, fear image Um, Mm. and it doesn't mean that there there had to be anything wrong with a person, but more like, you know, if you have this, have a bad feeling about a person or something, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you think, oh, there's, uh, there's something wrong with them. Um, and so that, so that has happened. Uh, so, so I can't say that it would always be reliable because it's a reflection of what I fear. Right. So, I see. Yes. Uh, so, so, so you can't say like, Oh, I can be used in a court uh, to suspect, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it takes your killers or something that wouldn't quite work. Um, but, um, I'm mean, be nice but it's not the case but that's uh so that's um what what i learned one thing i learned was i started to think about okay if we have this cross wiring what are some of the reasons that some of us have it uh and because it's about it's not that many people it's about seven seven percent of the population have a form of synesthesia. that can be for example they hear tones or music in colors um or as you said, like they, uh, you you touch them in one part of the body, and they might, they might taste it in their mouth, or yes, mm-hmm. um, something like that. So it's a cross wiring uh, of senses that, that we at least don't have as a, uh, as adults normally. And so I was thinking, like, how how would that sort of be carried on, uh, in terms of evolution? I mean, we'd have to have a a benefit, an advantage, and um, and so. So I started looking into that, and, and uh, in, in the meantime, there w- there's been a lot of research showing that in many cases it does have an advantage, but the advantage that it has relate to the particular synesthesia uh, in question, right? So if some people have um, numbers that are shapes and colors, for example. It might be, they might have an advantage in mathematics and so on, so... So it's not sort of just a general advantage, it's it, it's really an advantage that, that pertains to the particular synesthesia in question. Um, so that's how I actually got into it. Um, but uh, only later did I start a laboratory that uh, studied synesthesia.
0: Oh, you did, you started a laboratory that did it. Yes, well, that's interesting. Yes. After my so post-traum. you found some other people that had this capability.
1: Yeah, I found a lot. I was in uh, St. Louis, Missouri at the time. Uh, and I had, um, a, a, yeah, I found a lot of people in that general region. Um, it's obviously easier to study people who were close by, uh, so cheaper and easier than to, to have yes. to buy people in. Uh, one day, a person contacted me in that lab, um, and his name, he's, he's a public figure, uh, was Jason Padgett, and uh, he had been referred to my lab and uh, I said well I think I have synesthesia and uh, maybe you can use me but he wasn't, he wasn't anywhere close he was in Seattle or close to Seattle mm-hmm. uh, so on the other coast or I wasn't on the coast at the time but I was sort of far away and we started talking on the phone and I was asking him all these questions and then I found out that The most interesting thing about him was not just his synesthesia. He didn't have a form of synesthesia, but was that he had acquired it uh, after a brain injury and had also acquired very uh, particular, special mathematical abilities at the same time.
0: Oh, is that right? Interesting. And
1: And now we're almost over where you started with the superhuman mind. So one thing led to another, and we started studying people who had... Um, these special abilities and to see what we could learn about ordinary minds from these people.
0: So where was your lab in St. Louis? I've also been to St. Louis, spent a good deal. Yes.
1: Of like uh, it,
0: Washington University.
1: That is uh, actually where we conducted the research. I was located at University of Missouri, St. Louis. Um, oh yes, okay. Uh, they, everything is very close. There, there are three universities, as also St. Louis mm-hmm. University. But uh, yeah, we um, we didn't have the um, we 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 had a um, collaboration agreement with WashU. Where we, where we were able to use some of their um, machines and scanners and so on. So.
0: so then what did you do in this study? How did you, you said scanners. Were you looking at brain imaging? Were you doing single photon emission computer tomography?
1: <laughs> we did, uh, we've done different things with um, uh, that first person who had both, um, so what we call it is uh, uh, Savat's. Syndrome. yes. Uh, yes, particularly acquired Savant syndrome. So he has acquired synesthesia and acquired Savant syndrome. And uh, in this case, we used um, MRI, but a, a functional version of that, so functional mm-hmm. MRI. Uh, and what we were looking at, we were trying to locate some areas in his brain that that were generating uh, his synesthesia because he said that his synesthesia was part of what gave him his map abilities so mm-hmm. so that's what we did and another thing we did was uh, we used um, something that's called tms uh, transmagnetic
0: Yep. Uh, yeah TMS, well, we, uh, have, so TMS, we have we have an interview on that i think it's about yeah, 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 yeah. 0405 and the other thing i'm interested in is did you have a specific part of the brain that because of it would be visual i would expect it'd be in the posterior uh, Cerebral area. Near the well, stream.
1: you know what? That's what uh, we thought too, um, and we uh, surprisingly it wasn't. Yeah. Um, it was. Um, it was very much in the parietal, um, yeah. in the parietal lobe on on top of the head. Um, in some of the areas, of course, close to the back of the head were the visual areas. Mm-hmm. Um we actually found out that another person who has sabbat syndrome and synesthesia who's also a public figure uh, uh Daniel Tammet from Britain who was uh, also well known for born on a blue day that he some people had some other people had done some similar studies with him, and mm-hmm. they also found that it wasn't um a kind of synesthesia that was um primarily based in the in the visual cortex it was well, more sort of a higher order kind of synesthesia. So, so it's it uh, um, What
0: kind you said? I couldn't, didn't quite understand what you said.
1: Oh, uh, a higher order, uh, that's what they called it for, for Daniel Thomas, um, higher order form of synesthesia. Oh, that's higher one. order.
0: I misunderstood you. Yes. Yeah, no.
1: or a higher form. It's not, it doesn't mean that it's less visual because when you look at people, uh, engaging in novel imagery that is very vivid, you can also sometimes find, um, cases where you don't have so much activity in the visual parts of the brain and the back of the head but you have more in on the in the parietal lobe actually which is uh, on top of the head. So mm-hmm. so it's not unusual that you can actually have imagery that's not necessarily primarily based in the visual cortex.
0: I got you. Yeah. Interesting. So then that led you down the path somewhere in there with all that research you said I got to put this whole package together. I mean, yes. were you in your PhD studies at that point?
1: Uh, no, so it was just uh, uh, when I started doing that. I was after my postdoc, uh, mm-hmm. so it was after my my studies were done, and after I did the postdoc, and after I had gone, uh, so returned to the, to the U.S. Um, or after being, I was in Australia for the mm-hmm. postdoc, right? And I got back, and I thought, well, let's let's see if there are some student seats around, and uh, and that was when when he contacted me, and we uh, because he was far away, we had to sort of coordinate. So I coordinated with some collaborators and. Uh, we collaborated on that study. Uh, also, I had to get it right because it was a new f- area for me. So uh, so I had some uh, some very experienced collaborators. Uh, and then since then, now, we moved on with other subjects and uh, did more of the same.
0: So it sounds like that. And somewhere in that curiosity, you developed, you must have developed this, this superhuman mind concept. Now, I am curious about it. I won't wear you out with it. It's your book, but I would <laughs> I would love to hear what you what your um, perception was about minds that have some additional capabilities. I'm assuming that's what superhuman means let's talk about what superhuman mind is that'd be the good place to start well
1: so what what we uh, the people we studied so these people with these extraordinary abilities they uh they all of them were. Completely ordinary people. So Jason Padgett worked in a uh, in a furniture store as a salesperson.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, another public uh, person that we've studied, Derek Amato, who's um, a great physician now, he was a salesperson. Uh, they had they had no special abilities except for what they were trained to do in their jobs. Mm-hmm. um and uh jason Padgett uh was even had even dropped out of college so he had no uh mathematics background uh der had no music background he wasn't interested in music and so on so we were thinking like well if these people They hurt their head, right? So we're looking at people with brain injuries, traumatic brain injury. They hurt their head in one way or another, and in most cases, of course, most people don't develop anything but uh, disadvantages or disabilities, but, or if they're lucky, nothing. But in some cases, she just hurt it the right way, apparently, and you just sort of uh, maybe, um, maybe you have to be, you know, have a, 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 Slightly more susceptible mind or something. Then you develop these extraordinary abilities, but that must mean that that these abilities, these powers, that they must have been in there all along, right? So you know, how how else could they come out from just yeah? I mean, you, you, you take a hammer and you hammer someone on the head, and then they suddenly become smart. I mean, that doesn't make sense. So so they must have had the the. Uh, abilities in some in some form of another right Mm -hmm. Um, and so we thought well maybe we all have those and so the book is very much about that so we talk also about how you can improve your own minds we talk a a lot about memory techniques and um, uh, abilities to do calculations faster and so on but we also talk about technology and the near future about what what can we expect in the near future what kinds of technologies are there for for um, us more ordinary creatures for <laughs> developing these super, the superhuman minds.
0: So that's, that's sort of um, what the book is about. So then let me ask you a little question about that. So what would be the capacities that you could, that a person like myself, but I would consider myself a regular average person in terms of what you're talking about. I haven't had any significant head injuries uh, you know was not knocked unconscious, so I would be average in that regard do what could yes. I do as a person that might help me uh, give us a little bit of example if you don 't mind of how a person could train yeah. And, and, and
1: yeah so um so in the book we we actually we talk about how synesthesia actually in various forms um, can can be learned to some extent uh it does require some training. Mm-hmm. Uh, synesthesia then uh, does offer an advantage in many cases so for instance uh, we, we looked at uh, so children of course have uh, have an, already have an advantage but a uh, few children develop for instance perfect pitch where they can just distinguish and, and, and name um, a tone of music mm-hmm. uh, without a reference frame so so even when even most musicians don't have it but um, But um, we looked at at children who were developing a a kind of synesthesia by associating these tones with, with, say, colors and emotions. And and some of them developed something like a perfect pitch, which is a definite advantage uh, in music, even though you don't have to have it to be a great musician. Um, So we look at various ways in which synesthesia can help you uh, develop your uh, creativity, become more original, also help memory. Uh, so we look at interesting cases of um, where we take a little bit from uh, what so-called memory champions. Uh, those are the extreme people who have trained themselves to, uh, some of them have trained themselves, some of them are more or less born with it, um, trained themselves to do these uh, extreme memory tasks. So so Daniel Tamet, who um, was the, one of the people I mentioned earlier, um, has a European record in uh, reciting pi to uh, uh, the highest deci- uh, number of decimal points, and uh, so it's like twenty-two thousand or something uh, decimal points. Really? For the oh number gosh. pi, you know, so, so most people can do like three, one, four, one, five, you know, but you can just <laughs> go on for that, like for twenty, twenty-two thousand times, right? Oh my gosh! Um, without looking at anything except like closing his eyes and sort of looking inside his mind. He's, he has synesthesia naturally but then we we look at okay so how can you look um, so so he's a here's a sort of a, uh, a an example that, that's sort of a baby example uh, toy example if you wish so let's say that um, you you have to remember a shopping list and and you need milk on it uh, I mean you need to buy, buy milk you need to um, buy a bottle of red wine and you need to buy oranges and mm-hmm. So you might, um, put, uh, the milk, uh, in, in the kitchen where that's where you find the milk, but then you might, instead of just putting the milk in the pit in the kitchen and by putting it, I mean, in your mind, Mm -hmm. um, you, you could make a a big waterfall that's sort of absurd of milk splashing out. So you have the absurdity that goes with a certain kind of emotion or bodily response. And, um, and a location, and then the idea is that you don't have a route, so you walk in, stay to your living room and there you see something, say a bottle of red wine and it's scattered all over and it looks like blood and now you have this uh, uh, almost fear and uh, and it's almost like watching a thriller movie. And then you might walk out on your terrace and there maybe you have some oranges and maybe they have little faces and they're chit-chatting to each other or something. So it's funny. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you try to, uh, so there you have locations associated with an object in a certain path. And you have emotions to also help you uh, recall it. So this is a very simple example because there's only three items. But when you – people practice it um, for very – it doesn't take long before they can remember 10, 20, 30 items easily uh, that way. So even using their own house. um, uh, And so that's an example of uh, where you kind of use what's – uh, inherent to synesthesia yeah. um, but also some other techniques uh, that have been used by memory champions namely the idea of having a landscape where you put things so you can walk through the landscape uh, that will give you the right order as well which is not necessary if it's a shopping list but let's suppose it's uh, the number pi then you don't want to get the numbers mixed up right you don't want to get yeah. them in the wrong order
0: you have to go down um, the path
1: yeah yeah, so, so that's some of the techniques, but we also, of course, talk about um, what is only at the research stage at this point, and, uh, and, um, and, and those things are not things that you can go out and try because you would have to be a part of a research study, but there mm-hmm. are things that, that, that we are, uh, and other people are starting to use to um, sort of find those extraordinary abilities in so-called ordinary minds.
0: Well, it's interesting because as I'm listening to you, I'm imagining uh, the experience and what it sounds like you have concluded from the synesthetic experience is that if you use that principle of uh, things that are disconnected in some way mm-hmm. and actually finding a connection with disconnections, yeah. yeah, that it's easier to actually stay with rather than just trying to find a place to put it in your mind. Because they wind up having a life of their own. In their relative discordance, they then become a different thing.
1: Yeah. And if you don't aim at becoming like a pie memory champion or something or some other kind of memory champion, uh, usually you can use little narratives um, from your own life to do it. So. Let's say that you want to remember Pi. So when I, I, um, I had to sort of see how far I could get. Uh, I was bored on a flight back from Scotland, I remember. Mm-hmm. And so I used my first day as a postdoc in Australia. Um, so I kind of skipped the first because the first uh, like three one four, three, uh, one, four, one, five was uh, sort of what everyone knows. But then I sort of, the first person I met was, I remember it was this old, old guy, or at least I thought back then he was way old. And so I, I sort of recalled that he was like, he looked like he was ninety two, and so those mm-hmm. were the next two, right and, and so I went through you know uh, the hallway and, and so as I was I, so I out there, and I just thought through my first day, and because the first day, of course, is more, more significant than say my third day, right? so um, so I got to so I had to make make multiple I, I found that for each narrative I could do about two hundred. Um, I did not I was not able to do it in the sense that it, when I stopped practicing. When I stopped practicing, it would slowly sort of fade away. So mm-hmm. I probably do maybe with a little bit of effort, I might be able to use the two first, uh, the first two hundred. Um, but I, I was able to get up to two thousand, and I kind of got bored with that. So.
0: <laughs> well, two thousand is a big number. I mean, that's yeah. Very, it's not very
1: twenty-two thousand, but yes.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, you know, I'm going to ask you a question in just a second because I think what you're talking about is very interesting. And what I wanted to ask you to do, which is really about you personally and what you do now for a living and how you use this material. So when we come back, what I'd like to do is have you tell us the applications that you use. Are you uh, a professional that uses this in your life? Do you have classes? Do you teach this? In addition to reading your book, let's find out from Britt some of the other things that she does with this really really interesting information. So we'll be back in just a moment. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression, on every level for families, including military families, internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living How do we know we refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing? So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's dhalab.com forward slash core. Thanks, Britt. So we're back. Thank you, uh, listeners, for hanging there with us. This is very interesting because we're taking a really uncommon that's not – a lot of people don't know about synesthesia. That's why I did get a little excited in the run. (laughs) And here she's talking about synesthesia, which to me is a very, very interesting – Connective, neurologically connective uh, experience that some people have, and if if you're like a lot of listeners at Core Brain Journal, and you're looking for connections about the complexity of the mind that have a broader application, well, we're talking to, you know, the doctor here, Doctor Britt Brogard, who has a very specific technique of using synesthesia to actually take us to another level so the question that I was going to ask you about is and this is a little bit mundane based on the seriousness of the conversation but what do you do how do you apply it are you in practice using synesthetic techniques do you do and uh, you have a super uh, super mind uh, super human mind camp how does all that work <laughs>
1: uh, uh, so so uh, there was a school teacher in uh, so an elementary school teacher in in St Louis when I was in St. Louis before I moved to University of Miami. Uh, she was very interested in synesthesia, and we were just uh, studying uh, how perhaps you could learn or teach people synesthesia. But she was working with these children uh, in, in classes and, and, you know, in the very uh, low-level classes, you know, first grade, second grade, you know, if you teach uh, the kids, you teach them everything, right? I mean, you're the math mm-hmm. teacher and you're the English teacher and so on. Mm-hmm. So she was interested in in uh, seeing if that would facilitate Uh, some of the learnings particularly with math and uh, so by having the the kids associate some of the in the beginning it would just be associations begin the the numbers with colors uh and uh then it would become more automatic uh more natural to them over time and so we found that that um at least for that um age group of course children have a, a natural advantage but still they were uh it was much easier as you said uh once you got to um, you know a little bit up and they had to um, to learn the multiplication tables and so on it was much much easier for them um, once they had those connections and that was just color number connections right so mm-hmm. which uh, in, in a more formal term is called uh, is a form of graphene color synesthesia and um, they might not have had synesthesia in quite the same sense that people ha- who have it sort of from birth or from early on but they have had it enough that it helped them. So that was an example of where it it definitely helped uh, the children learn um, uh, various things like simple multiplication facts and other things that, that some kids in, in ordinary schools might have trouble with. Mm. Uh, So that, so that's one respect. And um, we have, uh, we've also, um, we've talked, that's someone sort of talking, talking to interviewed a lot of um, visual artists. Uh, in order to sort of get a sense of, there are some studies of of, of artists, population studies among artists who see how many have synesthesia, and it seems to be an increased number. But we also sort of talk to them and to see how much they actually rely on their synesthesia. So that's not necessarily people who learn synesthesia, but people who have synesthesia and then use it in the visual art Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: actually go into the visual arts uh, because of that. Um, But there are other ways. I mean, there are other ways sort of... um, if you if you have to be be original, right? People always use this old metaphor: think outside of the box. Um, and most people, um, kind of know what that means, but they don't know how to do it. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not obvious. How do you think outside of the box? Because I mean, if all your thoughts are like inside the box, how do you go outside the box? And sometimes that can help to um to to sort of um i mean they can be in all areas of life so we worked with for instance with uh some people who were interested in starting to look to write poetry they just had an interest in it they weren't naturally born poets in some sense or maybe they were but they didn't know it anyway yeah. um and uh so so there we used uh synesthesia which is also a term in in the literature um, so in 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 English right where it's, it it means for instance if you describe you know uh fear as not not just in the cultural sense where say uh you know oh sadness is blue but you know you might describe fear as being uh, a kind of piercing a piercing fear or um you know, you might take something that is in a completely different sensory modality and associate it with something that is in another sensory modality, but you do it in a con- more conceptual way. And if you look at, at, at poetry, in many cases, that is what po- uh, a lot of poets are doing, not all poet, uh, poet, uh, poets, but a lot of poets, say, yeah, they're really good at like, connecting these concepts that we don't normally connect, but we naturally have a sense of what exactly that means.
0: That's um, so well said. That is such an important point. Because if you're really going down through a poetry and you're listening to it or reading it uh, and you're taking yourself in the mind of the poet and you're in the environment, the context that they're in, and then they actually throw a different color or a different metaphor on an experience that's relatively commonplace, it yeah. helps you appreciate that poetry because it gives you a different wrinkle and it elevates you in a transcendent way. Something that might be commonplace and helps you connect with the larger order in a timeless way, as opposed to here I am right now, here's this thing, and now I'm in this whole other universe, which is what synesthesia is, and it hadn't occurred to me.
1: Yeah, so so we have these cultural worn out uh, one down one out uh, metaphors right with the blue sadness or the orange jealousy or or whatever culture you come from it might be a little bit different but but um, but it's really powerful when people manage then to connect something uh, with another color right that's really descriptive of say the sadness Mm-hmm. Right. So we've also used it actually to get people to talk about their emotions. Uh so instead of trying to describe how do you really describe sadness? What does that really mean? Um, you know, and they say, Oh well sometimes I you know, I'm really sad and so I cry a lot these days. You have them like what what kind of color would you put on? And maybe people might start by saying like, Well blue. Well but that's not um that's not what we want you to do. We want you like think about it, like what color, what shape, what shape does it have? And um, it gets people like, wait, wait, well, the sadness, it feels kind of, I don't know, rectangular and yellow. And um, and it can really help people describe uh, at least or maybe more understand because it's, 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 sometimes it also can really describe their emotions to other people because other people, sort of, they latch on, they kind of get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's something mm-hmm. very natural about synesthesia. Uh, to, to the point where where we believe that most people probably have had it at a time when they don't remember when they were young enough uh, and that um, before the brain started the serious pruning away of, mm-hmm. of extra connections right so so and also that there still are some connections um, in, the, in that we still we still associate um, for example high really high tone high pitch tones or high pitch with something sharp, for example, mm-hmm. um, and more low, lower pitch with something round and a little more. You know, oh yes. So, so we have, we have, we have a natural tendency towards synesthesia, I think, um, and, uh, and 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 it certainly, there certainly are some forms of it that are uh, even more natural than you would think. So. There's this thing called flavor, right, which we all take for granted. But if you think about it, it's really composed of, of smell and it's composed of, 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 of taste, which is mm-hmm. what, what you do mm-hmm. in a tongue. And and the smell, but then it it has a lot of other sensory modalities into because you can actually change the flavor of something by adding a different color to to it. If you give people something with two different colors, they might taste, have different flavors. They might get different flavors out of it. So you have something that's really multi-sensory and meaning composed of many senses. And that's kind of what synesthesia
0: is. Very interesting. Now let us take a moment to make sure we get a chance to connect our listeners with your two websites, because what we were talking about just a very brief period of time before we started, before we lit up the recording, was that you have two different websites. Each one does something a little different. So could you tell us about that and and and, and point us in the right direction? I've got them. I'll have them listed in the show notes, but you're welcome to say them and then what you do at them.
1: Yes. Yeah, so they are both at, um, so they're both free available online and they're written, uh, for the general reader. So one is, uh, psychology today, same name as the book. So psychology today, is today the superhuman minds, mm-hmm. um, and, and And just searching those words will actually uh, probably get get you to the site and on that site uh, we talk a lot about some of the same topics as in the book um, and sort of maybe slightly more sort of brain oriented uh, topics usually um, neuroscience oriented topics um, uh, cognitive psychology oriented topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's with uh, my co-author, Christian Mallow. And then the other one is also psychology today. Uh, it's called The Mysteries of Love. And yes, there's a lot about love on there. But there are also things that are sort of only vaguely connected to love or maybe a lot connected depending on how you look at it. But there's a, there's a lot on there about narcissism, about avoidant uh, personality style, uh, or, or the dependent or dependent um, um, attachment style. There's, uh, there's some some conditions that are not described really in the psychological literature, but more sort of in mainstream in the mainstream literature, like Peter Pan syndrome. That's like adults who refuse to grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, or in this case is I'm running this. Uh, and the, the latest one is. Um, uh, so it's about the office sociopath uh, and, the, uh, and, the, and the 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 work, workplace bully. So mm-hmm. so talk, we're we'll talking a little bit about that. Um, um, and um, and yeah. So so that so so the difference between them is that uh, the uh, the mysteries of love, which is Psychology Today, is more personality emotion oriented, whereas the uh, superhuman mind, which is also in Psychology Today, is is more sort of Brain neuroscience oriented. Um, in more generally speaking, so
0: and it's kind of more cognitively developed. How do you actually yes. get that that thinking mind to evolve into a more yes. cognitive apparatus? Where
1: yeah. if that's some new interesting thing that comes out in science, we might cover that. You know, um, so it's 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 not that it's more science oriented. It's maybe more um, science oriented in the sense of neuroscience or. Or, or even uh, you know, conscious brain science, or yeah, that, uh, Whereas mm-hmm. the other one might be more sort of, um, uh, sort of personality psychology, social psychology, uh, mm-hmm. uh, emotion studies, or yeah, Both that. of them
0: have to do with coping in the world. One's a little more cognitive. <laughs> one's a little more <laughs> affective. You know. That's and exactly that right. If you get the, if you get the uh, superhuman mind, you've got yourself organized, and you can remember what the groceries were. And if you're doing the mysteries of love uh, site, it's more of a, it has to do with a, a emotional vulnerability and sensitivity, because that's what the issues would be with bullies or the sociopath at the office. Because all of us have lived in circumstances like that, and we are hurt by individuals who behave with us like that in the workplace. So it's more of an affective, emotional, mm-hmm. overcoming that part of it, and the other one's like training your mind to be sharp. And sounds very interesting. So how do you do that? Do you have um, do you have blog posts over there, or what actually is the interface in the in in those two? Uh,
1: yeah. So it, it's blog posts, and of course, sometimes I'm more active over there because it is. Um, I try. I mean, I attempt to to write in the style uh, that that sort of most people can go and read without having had to take a PhD in neuroscience or in in psychology, personality psychology, or something like that. Right. So, so uh, if I'm too busy with other kinds of research projects, I might not um, post as frequently. But I try to update it, uh, you know, now and then. Um, and um, and that there's the lots of posts already. So if you I've not seen it already. There's lots of stuff there to, to read. Well,
0: I am going to guess this next one, and you can tell me I'm right or wrong. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. I think you're a poet.
1: Yes, that's do you, right.
0: Do you, do you write poetry? Yes. Yeah, you do. That,
1: yes, yes, that's, that's the, I do.
0: So what happens is, will they find some of your poetry over there?
1: um no they will not but um i believe i still have a link uh on i have uh i have a um a, broker, a a google site uh actually it's a i'm not so sophisticated with my professional work here i still have normally have a lab page but it's down right now so i'm not gonna refer you to it um that, that's a little more sophisticated normally but it's uh it's down, uh currently but the mm. google the google site is um see it's a well so it's a google site so it's a so it's 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 um uh brogard b is the last part otherwise it's the same
0: as a, i got you yeah and that's with two a's listeners b-r-o-g a-a-r-d b
1: right and uh, at the the sort of in very very small print <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> underneath uh the two pictures of me teaching and um and writing something down in some notes. No, that's cool. Uh, so
0: that's probably Google Plus. It's probably a Google Plus site, like a. Is it is it Google Plus? Is that what the site is?
1: It's just called uh, Google site. I've had it for years and years and years, and I I never bothered updating to you know, from when I was in Australia. I mean, I,
0: I just kept the same site. So I probably so shouldn't answer. have asked you about it. it. Sounds like it's a little <laughs> private.
1: <laughs> no, it is not at all private. It's completely public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but most of it, I was going to say that most of it. Are these like very uh, super specialized academic articles? But before you get to those, there are these like written with very small print. Um, and if you go go to that, you can see both the links to my Psychology Today blog, um, and you can see a link that's called poetry. Wow. Um, yeah. I sometimes put stuff up there that I'm not particularly uh, proud of. Um, so I used to uh, I used to publish um, poetry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, but now I uh, I occasionally um, if I have time put put a poem up there, but I'm not always I don't always have time to sort through and what and sometimes what I think is is what I like uh, is not what other people like and so on. So.
0: Well, you have to see I, I'm a poet myself, but I haven't been a poet for a long time. I was a poet to be to be timely about it. I was a poet for many years and wrote wrote in school papers in high school and college and so on and so forth. And I think with poetry, to use and to close a little bit on this thought, it's really a synesthetic moment when you're in that place because it is a different place. It's not the same place you live in or that I live in. It's a place that's different somewhere out there. And you find it. And then when you find it, you have a realization in it. And then it's really fun to communicate that realization because – then you have actually taken yourself out of the everyday and you really have uh, a comment to others that, that others can share and, and, and connect with you on. So,
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. You make, make me uh, feel like writing a poem now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed talking to you. I mean, a lot of what you said is poetry, period, just by the way you're conducting yourself and the way you're thinking about people.
1: Oh, it's uh, really great talking to
0: you. Well, I really appreciate you coming on board, and I think it's just a it's an excellent uh, idea for all of us to look at. It's really a, a, a story. This little brief conversation is a story about connections, which is really our favorite theme here, uh, taking disparate ideas and weaving them together in some way that has uh, utilitarian value, even if it's just transcendence in the moment, you know, there, there's some value in, in, in the connections that perhaps we didn't recognize and, and we can grow from them. So thank you so much for coming on.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was we really
0: appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. So you we'll have, have a,
1: a great person to be on. Yes. Thank you.
0: Thank you, ma'am. You have a good day. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.